You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned into our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify our work and the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with the funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. And we can't I'm have Josh a show Gibson. without you, Josh. Well, hell no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got me there. Um, I, as, as many know, I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You might also uh, know me as our voice on social media um, and as, as host of this show. Um, and we want to welcome back today uh, Ward 6 Council Member Charles Allen. It's welcome good to back be back, up. although I, I feel like it's been a while, so I've been negligent, but it's good to see you again. Not that I checked. September oh, no, I know you checked. 18, September of 2018. <laughs> um, it's, but it's been a, a slow uh, few news years. There hasn't been a lot going on. Nothing's going to happen. Exactly. exactly. Locally. Um, but anyway, for whatever the reason, I'm grateful to have you back and on Valentine's Day. So, so that's nice as well. Absolutely. Um, our focus, I know we're definitely a little tight on time. Um, so our focus today is going to be primarily your new committee responsibilities. You are uh, now chairing a committee that you'd served on previously, uh, Transportation and Environment. So I want to talk a little bit about your priorities there. And uh, other than that, we'll see where, uh, where things take us. Yeah, well, I'm really excited. This is, um, you know, Councilmember Che led this committee for uh, a long time. Um, and with her retirement, um, I was really excited to, to get tapped to, to lead this committee. Um, transportation, energy, environmental issues are kind of near and dear to me. So it's just a really great opportunity. Um, I'm really excited about it. And I think, you know, we're at a moment over the next couple of years, especially with the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed nationally, um, we're about to see so much in the way of um, prioritization, of resources, of funding that's gonna come in. It's really gonna be a, a, a really critical and important time to help shape how the district responds to this, how we help get all these different dollars, these programs, these efforts, down into our communities and our neighborhoods and into our residents' hands and homes. So uh, it's really a, a exciting time, frankly, uh, to be chairing this committee. Was this your uh, your top choice when you had to go to Chairman Mendelssohn with your wish list? Yeah, this I this is what I asked for, uh, and so I was really grateful that uh, that we got that. I got a great committee lineup, um, and so I I am excited to get to work. Um, it just from looking at kind of your your background and also uh, um, Councilmember Chase' time on the committee, it seemed like she leaned a little bit more towards the environment side of transportation and environment. And I'm just guessing, even though I know you have bills out on both halves, that you are going to be a real uh, transportation leader. You're going to really emphasize the transportation half of the coin. Do you think that is fair? Um, I. I think that both are really important. I kind of view them as like two sides of the same coin. Uh, and so they are intrinsically linked, which I think is why it's important and why they're grouped together from a committee structure standpoint. But 
Um, but yes, I, I will be pushing aggressively on transportation, everything from safe streets and trying to actually put in place a vision zero plan to rethinking what transportation means. And, and I really see these as integral links to our economic recovery, uh, to our workforce development, uh, to everything. So I, I see this as a kind of a common thread that's going to touch a lot of different areas that we've got to work on across the whole city. But transportation will certainly be a, a pretty important part of it all. Uh, you're in an interesting spot because I feel like one of your signature transportation bills was the um, free bus measure that passed before you even were chairing the committee. Um, so how do you how do you uh, go up from there? <laughs> well, first off, we actually have to implement this and make it work. But um, but yeah, I mean, as a member of the committee, I really I enjoyed working with Councilmember Che because. Uh, we really formed a really good partnership uh, on the committee. So I was a member of the committee, but was able to get a lot done working with her. And one of the big things uh, most recently is our Metro for DC proposal, which, as you noted, uh, will essentially turn our buses fare free uh, as early as this coming July. Simply transformative for our city, for our businesses, for our workers. And then on top of that, it'll also phase in in about a year and a half or so it'll phase in $100 a month subsidy for DC residents for the rail. Um, I think that while we've got the law passed, the CFO has said all the money is there. Now we got to get to implementation with WMATA and with DDOT and with the, you know, the soup of acronyms that exist. But really at the end of the day, it's getting this thing up and running. Uh, that's going to be really a priority for this entire first year. Now, this is a little bit inside baseball, but walk me through how it went from being purely the $100 subsidy bill to presto changeo uh, in a cool kind of way turned into uh, the free bus situation, which I know uh, Chairman Mendelson was involved a bit behind the scenes, but that was it literally just an epiphany? Was it really just wait that the logistics are easier on free bus? Let's lead with that. And then yeah. have a two phase, a phase. I'd just be curious to hear how that happened. It, it was a combination of kind of uh, opportunities and 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 the right moment. So you know, we had, I first introduced this idea actually the week before DC shut down with the pandemic. So we introduced this first in the spring of 2020. Um, obviously, as we had to focus on our immediate pandemic response, it kind of went to the back burner for a little bit. In a way, though, people really were able to see how important this is because of the pandemic in two ways. One is seeing that those that are most bus dependent, those that are most transit dependent, were the very essential worker that everyone was cheering from their porch and windows. Uh, the folks that were working the hospitals, the folks that were making sure the grocery stores were stocked, the folks that did not have the opportunity to telecommute and, and join in from their home on a computer. Um, and that's why we saw our bus ridership you know, dip initially, but recover very quickly. And so I think people really understood how important that, that bus ridership is. The second part is recognizing how important our WMATA's recovery is to the overall DC economic recovery. So those two things help people really see it. Then working you know, with a new general manager at WMATA, um, we have uh, really good board members from the district that, that are on the WMATA board. And so really the opportunity came up to say, we've got this legislation moving through, we've got an opportunity to to, to move this quickly. And when we looked at the hearing, uh, when we held the hearing on the bill, you know, DDOT said, we could do this, but it's gonna take us some time to do the subsidy program. We're gonna have to create an entire system around it and everything else. And um, 
the urgency is there. And so the opportunity presented itself for us to move the urgency to say, let's go ahead and make buses fare free right now. We can make this. We can add more than a dozen bus routes that are going to run 24 hours a day. I mean, the number of businesses that are excited about this because what it means for their workers to be able to get home or for someone to stay out late and you know enjoying our city. Um, very excited about that. It comes with a $10 million a year investment in service and equity improvements. So we're not just making the ride free, we're making it better. So both those things go together, just a really phenomenal opportunity to move quickly. And then we'll also add in, you know, in about a year and a half or so, the, the subsidy to help with the rail ridership. But it's crucially important and, and it kind of all came together. And also, uh, as a as a bus rider, I just love to see the buses finally getting their respect. I, I feel like technology has gone a, gone a long way to make people more comfortable riding a bus who might not have been longtime bus riders. Uh, but buses just get nothing but disrespect. They're not shiny. They're not the silver lines. Think, gets all think the about what buses connect our neighborhoods, right? Rail kind of connects the region. So. So rail, you know, most people don't jump on Metro rail just to kind of move around their neighborhood. That's what the bus is for. But we've always just kept the bus as this other thing. And so we're really trying to lift up the bus, really make sure that people feel like I've got a great ride. It moves around and people now, you know, they know their bus routes, um, you know, whether they're jumping on the 92 or the D6 or whatever it is that gets them across town um, and connect them to their neighborhoods. That's something I'm really excited about. Um, and this is for everybody, right? This is going to be just fair free. So this means that, you know, we're really telling everybody like the bus is for you. The bus is for everybody. And the uh, the other byproduct of this uh, that WMATA is very excited about is we'll see the buses start running more frequently and more efficiently. The amount of time it takes to do fare collection, and sl it slows down people getting on and getting off the bus. We're now just going to be able to open the doors. Everybody on, everybody off. Let's keep moving. And it'll speed up the way in which you move around by bus too. And when you said this could roll out as early as July, maybe I'm misremembering because I thought that that it was going to hit October 1 potentially, but what would allow for a July start date? So um, Metro system, uh, WMATA operates on a different fiscal year than the District of Columbia. So they run on a July 1st beginning of a fiscal year, whereas we run on an October 1st beginning of the fiscal year. Um, so they would prefer it to line up with the beginning of their fiscal year. Since the CFO has now been able to identify that this is fully funded already, so the, the district's recovery and, and, and budget will fully fund this, we can go ahead and get the agreements between DDOT and with WMATA. If they can get that done this spring, that'll give WMATA the time it takes to, to make those conversions, and we could start as early as July. Um, I mean, could it conceivably push to October? I guess it could, but there's no reason for it to. We've got the law passed. We've got the funding there. Let's just get this thing going, and let's get it up and running in July. And does everyone seem on the same page about that? The mayor, Metro, and uh, obviously we are, the council is. I, th I mean, I think so. I think everyone understands how critical this can be. There's obviously, you know, details to work out between an MOU and those different elements. But I think that we all understand how important this is. Um, I have met with the deputy mayor. I've met with the DDOT director, uh, really trying to make sure that this is on track or on the bus, on the wheels. Shouldn't use a track for rails when we're talking about the bus. Yeah, it's it's an express bus to yeah. to pass. Now, uh, in terms of other committee priorities, um, I saw you know there's there's definitely been talk about uh, increasing number of EV charging stations, um, and also uh, subsidies and uh, facilitating process for swapping out gas stoves. Mm -hmm. um, are those uh, 
you want to talk about those briefly or are there other yeah. priorities you want to throw out there? Yeah, absolutely. We'll start with the EV charging. So the district is so, so far behind in building out the infrastructure for charging. Uh, so, you know, you think about one of the other hats that I wear um, as council members, I sit on the transportation planning board, which is our regional planning board for all of our departments of transportation and elected officials. And, you know, we've looked at what is it going to take for us to be able to meet our different climate goals and to do one of the strategies that we have to have to be able to move forward with is to be able to start rapidly converting the cars and trucks that are on our roads to electric vehicles. And to do that, when the average, you know, the average ownership of a vehicle is about eight to 10 years. So you hold on to your vehicle for eight to 10 years. Um, that means that all the cars and trucks that are on the road today, you're not going to see that turnover for another decade, really. So we've got to move aggressively and quickly. And if we really do want to see people convert to that electric vehicle, and there's a whole bunch of federal incentives that are coming for this, you got to build out the charging infrastructure because if you don't have a place to charge it and not everybody has a convenient parking spot in the back of their house, then you've got to build out a public charging infrastructure. And so we're really going to push hard on this. And I've introduced legislation to set some pretty ambitious goals as well as leverage a lot of the federal resources that are coming in. And that's going to be something you see us push aggressively in the committee over the next couple of years. And then your other point around, and this is taking advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act, we have a lot of federal resources that are about to come down the line to help people make choices to convert from a gas fossil fuel burning appliance into a uh, electric. And I know you're going to see, you know, like Joe Manchin's all upset, thinks people are going to come take out gas stoves. Like no one's coming in to remove your gas stove, but we do want to help people incentivize to make that shift and make that change. Um, it's healthier, it's more equitable, it's cheaper, um, and it's better. So there's going to be a lot of tax incentives that are going to be out there. So who benefits from tax incentives? Higher income households, upper middle income households that use tax code, right? So uh, I'm going to, I'd like to make that choice, but gosh, if I can do a, you know, if I, when I file my taxes after I make that upfront investment, I'll get 800 bucks back. All right. That might be the decision point for me to do that. But if you can't actually front the costs for installation and that appliance in the first place, then the tax code is only going to be helping upper middle and higher income households. So we're really building out an entire strategy around how do we help lower income households be able to uh, swap these out basically at no cost. How do we make sure we're paying for it, utilizing the Inflation Reduction Act, but also, and this is where you know I mentioned earlier, these kind of lines that connect to other efforts. The, the workforce opportunities that we have in front of us for this type of electrification, the jobs and careers that we're gonna need to be able to create pipelines of DC residents, they're gonna have well-paying, great jobs is immense. And so we've got to work aggressively to make sure we've got folks getting trained up, that we've got the opportunity to be able to, to know how to do that. You know, if you're going to change out from a gas furnace to an electric, or you're changing out a gas water heater to electric, there's a lot of people that are about to start making these choices to make these changes. And if we don't have a workforce ready to take advantage of it, then DC residents don't get to benefit from that. And so that's one more place where we're trying to help draw those lines, um, because that's that is something that while maybe isn't workforce development isn't necessarily in our committee, there is a direct line, I think, to the, the green and clean economy that's coming and the jobs and careers we can create for that. Definitely. Um, and uh, back on the EV conversion, uh, a resource that folks might not uh, be thinking of um, is a gentleman by the name of Gabe Klein, 
who, uh, you know, headed up the Zipcar's DC office, was head of DDOT, um, you know, has gone on to uh, be literally the head of yep. my understanding of installation of electric vehicle charging stations for the nation, uh, for the president. Um, and he's not that he's going to play favorites, but the fact that he's familiar with DC's infrastructure, it doesn't hurt. Hopefully will will bode well for us. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen a lot of people make that connection, but uh, shout out to shout out to Gabe. Um, so, uh, you know, mentioning your transition of committees, um, unfortunately, your prior committee, uh, the workload of your prior committee is showing up in your new committee's jurisdiction. It seems like, unfortunately, there's been um, from carjacking to uh, fair jumping to violence in Metro, um, the world of judiciary is, is um, definitely present in the world of mm -hmm. transportation. Um, can you talk a bit about how your prior committee and your new committee um, are overlapping and what your thoughts are for how to um, get on top of the situation that we've been facing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think public safety hits every committee and every person. So it, it's, it's kind of a shared priority for everybody. Um, you know, I think we're trying to look at ideas. Let's take, we'll use Metro as an example. I know in talking with the general manager, uh, public safety on our Metro system is huge priority. Uh, it's also how we, 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 people need to have confidence that they, they can have a safe ride uh, on the bus on Metro. And we've unfortunately had a series of shootings around Metro stations um, and sometimes in a Metro station that are just absolutely devastating. So I think there's a, a, a good partnership that is being created between the Metropolitan Police Department and our uh, WMATA Transit Police, two different police departments. Um, the WMATA Transit uh, Department has said they are uh, about 25% of their officer positions are vacant. Um, they're having a really difficult time being able to, to recruit and hire folks. Um, in DC, we've, you know, we've, I helped create huge recruitment incentives, retention incentives to, to try to help out from an MPD perspective. But we've got to be able to um, have the, the, that effort be paired together. And we're going to be piloting, I think it's around five or six stations overall, where you're going to see MPD officers paired up with Metro Transit Police to kind of help be a little bit of a force multiplier um, and be highly visible in that process. So I think you're going to see some partnerships that I think will help resonate with riders to, to help make sure that you, you know you've got a greater confidence in a safe ride. Yeah, I know as I, I've been in the D.C. area since I was six and everyone always knew Metro as the safest place you mm -hmm. can be. Um, and what, what I'm wondering is, is this. I, I don't think there was superior law enforcement on the Metro. I just think Metro was safer because Metro was safer. Um, now that that bubble has been burst and I feel like there is more, um, more public safety issues. I, I don't know how, how do we go backwards? How do we, how do we yeah. get back to a time where Metro is um, as safe as can be? Um, well, I, I, first off, I would say Metro is safe. I, I, I ride Metro regularly myself. And so I want everyone to feel confident in that ride on Metro. I'd put my family on Metro uh, immediately. I, Metro is a safe ride. That said, we still need to work on public safety challenges and make sure that folks feel confident in that. And there's there's two, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think there's two main uh, issues that I'd focus on as well. One is um, because of 
federal inaction, as well as court decisions, we see more guns, illegal guns in our community now than we have before. Um, MPD is recovering twice as many illegal guns off the streets in DC than they were just a year or two ago. Um, that is deeply troubling. And that is absolutely a result of the complete inaction of Congress um, to, to take smart gun laws and put them in place, as well as a court that has eroded DC's strong gun laws. So that is one factor. There's another significant factor, which is we have a lot of people that are struggling following a pandemic, following the different stressors that have taken place. We have more, I think, mental health challenges of people in deep, deep need than we had a couple of years ago. And so we see that play out in conflicts between young people. We see that play out in conflicts with adults. Uh, things that used to be just a maybe a verbal argument are turning quickly into violence. And that to me is another real significant need of you know, a, a really strong response on mental, mental and behavioral health to identify individuals that are at risk and go get your resources. Because I do think when you have a combination of deep mental health, behavioral health uh, crisis and easy access to guns, it is a lethal combination. And it is not an exhaustive list, but those two items I think do represent a difference. And that's not just on Metro. That is something that we are seeing in neighborhoods and communities, uh, not just in DC, that's across the entire country. Um, every city in America, has been struggling with this. Small towns have been struggling with this. Suburbs have been struggling with this. So it's not unique to us, but we know that our solutions are gonna be homegrown. And so we've gotta really be responsible for what we can control and really take a lot more aggressive action. Yeah, I mean, watching the, the news, the 11 o'clock news last night, thinking about this interview, there were a number of crime stories um, and they were basically one per jurisdiction, but it's, DC always that seems to take the perception, um, the the brunt of the perception that yeah. that crime is is increasing. How do you how do you deal with the perception issue? That I'm I'm not saying that that crime is not an issue and one crime is too mm -hmm. many, but I do feel that there is a bit of a uh, self fulfilling prophecy in terms of the perception and the media coverage that folks get. Um, so so intensely focused on crime. Um, how, how do you, in addition to solving the crime problem, you have to solve the perception problem? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, I think that uh, Chief Conti has talked a lot about this, and, and I think has tried to help um, you know uh, lay out the data so that people can try to make clear-eyed decisions about things. Um, you know, so looking at what Chief Conti has told us, you know, uh, violent crime in D.C actually went down last year by about 15%, I believe. Violent crime this year compared to last year is down about another 17%. But here's what I always say. Yeah, I, all this, I could show you all the stats in the world. If crime just happened to you, if it just happened on your block, if it just happened to somebody you know, crime just went up. And so that perception is, is people's reality. And so we have to be able to, to both use data to tell us and make clear-eyed decisions from a policy perspective about what it is we're going to do and how we respond. But you cannot, you can never negate someone's perception um, and tell them what their feeling's not right. You, you can, you know, you don't know what they experience. You don't know if they're a victim of crime, if they're a survivor, if they've got a family member. And so you have to be really deeply respectful of what people's experience and perception is. 
Um, and that is that is the, the 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 space that we have to kind of meet each other in is recognizing where that perception is is strongly held, what the data is telling us, and as a policymaker, how do we try to make the right decision to move forward? Because at the end of the day, uh, I think everybody wants safe neighborhoods and safe communities, and that's what we got to keep pushing and driving for. Um, and I and I realize this was many many years ago, but you've spoken about it publicly. Uh, you were a victim of violent crime. Mm -hmm. You and you and your wife were a victim. Um, how do you, I have respect for the fact that you're able to get above the crime situation and look at the causes and not just uh, always think of, of punishment um, and to think of how do we uh, get to the underlying causes of crime. How are you able to do that when you were uh, so personally a victim of a very, very scary incident? Yeah, well, I guess real fast, just so that people know uh, they're watching, um, yes, I, I was a victim several years ago of um, gun violence where it was a robbery um, with a gun and ended up uh, firing the gun next to my head and split open the back of my head when I was struck with the gun. Um, and I carry that scar with me today. Um, it was deeply traumatic for me and for any victim who's gone through something like that, you carry it with you. Um, you know, I I try to... Um, when I talk with victims and survivors of crime frequently, um, and I I know when I share my own experience, um, you know, it, it helps sometimes. I also know that um, having had that shared experience, it helps me be able to relate and understand a little bit more about what trauma they're going through, their feelings, um, and and the journey that they're going to be on. Every victim's experience, though, is different and unique. And so that's another big, important part of this. And I've worked with a lot of victims' rights organizations over the years. Um, you Nobody gets to speak for another victim. Uh, you have to let that victim and survivor speak for themselves and own their own story and own their own truth and just respect that's what theirs is. Uh, no one gets to say what, you know, kind of what a monolithic uh, perspective is. And so I think when you kind of ground it in that, when you respect and realize um, each victim and survivor gets to speak for themselves. I think that helps you be able to hear what their story is, what their experience is, what justice would mean to them, and um, and just kind of hold that space and, and respect that as we try to make decisions. Um, you, you've definitely had your share of the national uh, spotlight um, more positively in terms of the March for Our Lives and uh, in terms of the free bus legislation. But currently with the, the sort of the, the the uh, crime perception in, in the district, you've had a fair amount of um, social media anger, um, vitriol. Um, how, how does that feel? How do you deal with that when people are, are blaming all of these terrible things on you um, and the decisions you've made and things that you've labored on for years and years and you know in your heart are right? How do, how do you deal with that? Well, I think we have to recognize when, I mean, we've got an extreme radical right House of Representatives right now. Uh, trying to find logic in them is is going to be a fool's errand. Uh, so I think that, you know, we sign up for these jobs uh, to be able to have some thick skin. Uh, so the fact that we'll have some folks, you know, from Michigan or Wisconsin or Ohio that that want to yell, that's, that's not going to influence me. Um, we know that we've spent the time and the energy, you know, what you're talking about right now is the uh, 16 year long process to modernize our 120 year old criminal code. Um, it is fair, 
it holds accountable. It is something that when harm is done, we would have new tools to help hold people accountable. We would have new ways, uh, stronger ways to hold people accountable because our current criminal code is failing our city. Um, we also just know this has nothing to do, like the, the radical right talking points have nothing to do with a genuine concern for safety in the district. Um, the criminal code that they are criticizing is tougher on crime than even their own home states. Uh, so that's not what it's about. Uh, it's about scoring political points on the backs of DC residents. We are used to that. It's not fair, it's not right, but it's what we've seen happen time and time again. And we will just have to continue to, to fight um, until we receive full DC statehood and full representation. It is the position that we are in. And so, you know, it's part of what led me when we fought hands off DC against Jason Chaffetz, it was years ago, uh, is continued to be what we fight for in the district that we get to make our own decisions because that person screaming and yelling from Ohio or Wisconsin or Texas or Florida or Georgia is never going to show up on your ballot. You don't get to hold them accountable. Uh, so you tune that out and you just keep keep getting the work done. And how does your family deal with the vitriol? I just I would just be tough as a kid to know your dad as people are. My kids are small, so they're not on Twitter, so it's OK. <laughs> Good. Let's keep it that way. Uh, so uh, just quickly to close out, uh, we always try to do a little something fun at the end of an interview. Um, and this current round is I'm going to name an odd task to you. And I want you to say which of your colleagues you would pick to tackle that task. OK. And, um, assembling Ikea furniture. Am I doing this with this person or I'm, I'm outsourcing this job to them? Um, either. Whichever is uh, makes it easier. I'd like to build some Ikea furniture with Janice Lewis George. That'd be fun. Okay. Um, how about to driving cross country? Mm, that's going to test patience on everybody involved. Uh, I'd go with Robert White. Okay. And why? He's, he's a, he's a happy guy. Uh, I, I feel like we'd have some good music going. Uh, I feel like we'd be able to, to laugh along the way. And um, yeah, I think we're in good shape. That's who I'd pick. That's my seatmate. How about bringing someone home uh, for a dinner with your family? Um, mm, I mean, I'd love all of them to come over to my house for dinner. Um, I think Brianne, um, I've had dinner, our, our families have had dinner together before, um, and our kid, we both have young kids. Uh, so, you know, the kids could go downstairs in the basement and watch a movie and, and cause trouble while the adults get to catch up. That, that sounds about right. Uh, you mentioned music. How about compiling a musical playlist? Who would you trust to uh, put together a playlist for you? Treyon. Okay, that sounds fair. Uh, and uh, finally, everyone's favorite, Fighting off barbarians. Oh, I wasn't expecting this one. Um, gosh, who am I, put, am I putting a weapon in their hands to fight off the barbarians? Up to am you. I looking for a tactical person. Um, could be attitude, could be, you know, uh, just force of will. I guess give Phil the job. I think Phil, Phil would probably enjoy doing that. This almost everyone would pick Mary Che for this. Well, she's not uh, a colleague anymore. I, I know. Tell me, I, I can go, I can de I can go dig deep into uh, our retired members. Yeah, that's that's true. That's yeah. true. I, I should. The rules are changing as you play the game. I understand now. Absolutely. 
Uh, okay, well, I know uh, you're tight on time, so we're going to go ahead and cut this short. I appreciate you coming back. I hope whatever I did last time that led to the five-year punishment uh, <laughs> is not replicated. It'll come back soon. There, there was no punishment. That was all just my failure of making the time for you, Josh. So I look forward to coming back sooner than five years. Councilmember Nadeau and Robert White are both vying to have the, the, the be the first council member to have 10 interviews with me. Oh, my gosh. But I that, you got to catch up to do. Yeah. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Uh, listeners, remember to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Search under Hearing the Council. Thank you again, Councilmember, for joining us. Listeners, tune in next time. We're on DC Radio 96.3 on your FM HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a hearing. This is not a council hearing. I screwed up my own tagline. This is hearing the council. Thanks, Councilmember. Thanks, Josh. Take care. Bye-bye.